Thank you, Lord, that you are a God who listens to our prayers. You are a God who is living and active in our lives because you love us. You love us. You're not a God that just spins the world in motion and then steps back. You are a God who is intimately involved in our daily life. You just love us. We don't even come close to deserving the love that you give to us. We really only deserve one thing. And that's the one thing that you died so that we don't have to experience it. God, thank you. You are worthy of praise. Lord, there are are so many things that we are just thankful for, but also things that we can come to you and, and ask that you would intervene. Lord, we know that there are those among us that are suffering from various health issues, cancer, and recovery from surgery and surgeries upcoming. And Lord God, I just I pray for your healing touch on those who need it. I think of Sandy Ashbaugh and the, the continued treatments that she's going through for lung cancer. And just be with her and Ken and sustain them, Lord. And I know that uh, Steve Roth continues his recovery from back surgery and Donna is waiting for knee surgery. And Lord, we just ask that you would sustain them. God, for Dorothy Vogie's grandson, Andy, he just needs your touch, Lord. Cancer he's facing. And we just know, Lord, that it is you who are the great physician, and, and we know that you work in many ways. We just pray that you would make a way. And God, for our country, we, we pray for our leaders, for President Biden, and for the, the Congress, and, and for Governor Walls, and, and all of the decisions that are ongoing and being made, Lord, through what we pray is the end of this pandemic Lord, we pray for wisdom to know how to move forward as a country, as a church. We pray that you would be in every aspect of what is happening in our nation. We pray that you would give wisdom to our leaders. We pray for our leaders, that they would bend their will, bend their knee, that they would humble themselves, that we would humble ourselves before you, God of creation. Please make a way for our country. I think about all of the, the people in our country that are struggling with just depression, anxiety. Lord, there are more people today than ever before who are struggling with mental health issues, struggling with feelings of depression and even suicidal thoughts. God, people in our own community that are struggling with this. We pray for relief the kind of relief that can only come from you, Lord God. And I pray that we as believers would be like an oasis of hope. I pray that this church would be a place where people can recognize and feel your love and hope. God, I pray for these grandsons who are going to be heading to the Middle East representing our country, protecting our country. Pray, Lord, for Corey and Carter. Protect them. Strengthen them for the task at hand. Lord, we love you. We love you. Help us to love others the way you love us. 
In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you've got your Bible with you, you can open to Luke chapter 21. We're going to be continuing our study in the Gospel of Luke. Three weeks from today is Resurrection Sunday, Easter Sunday. It's hard to believe that it is Easter Sunday again already. And as we've studied Luke for the past many months, we've been following Jesus on his way to Jerusalem. And specifically, the past three weeks, we have been with Jesus in Jerusalem during the final week before his crucifixion. Jesus taught his disciples and the crowds of people at the temple. The Jewish leaders, the Pharisees, Sadducees, and teachers of the law, challenged Jesus' authority. Jesus answered their challenges. He silenced them, even to the point of destroying the traps they attempted to snare him in. And he challenged them by proving that the Messiah was both the Son and the Lord of King David. Jesus' authority was real and it was secure. And the evil hearts of the Jewish leaders were laid bare by the words of Jesus. Today, we turn to the final teaching of Jesus the final public teaching of Jesus before the final events of his trial and crucifixion were put in motion. Before I I read Scripture and before I even pray as we read Scripture, I, I want to acknowledge something about what we're going to read today. This topic is an exceptionally difficult one. Textually, This passage presents unique challenges because it is a prophecy of the future. But even more than the challenges we're going to face in the text, I'm concerned that this passage, this particular passage of Scripture, is divisive among Christians. I want you to know at the beginning of this message that I am proceeding with fear and trembling. Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 13 says, Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. You know, when people talk about, and especially a lot of preachers, start to preach on the end times and start to preach on what's going to happen in the future, They preach with a cavalier attitude. They preach with an attitude like, I know exactly what's going to happen, and I'm going to tell you what's going to happen. And if you don't agree with me, you're wrong. I'm going to start my sermon by saying, that's not my attitude. (laughs) Okay? I approach this topic with fear and trembling. Because I don't know about you, but the future hasn't happened yet, and so I'm not going to act like I know exactly what's going, to, what's going to happen. But I am convinced that with 
a proper attitude of humbleness around this topic. God will act in me and in you according to his good purpose. That, I believe, is the appropriate way to approach biblical prophecy. Humbly. With an acknowledgement that I don't know for sure. Because it hasn't happened yet. Will you pray with me? Lord God, I... I just, I just need you. <laughs> God, when it comes to this topic, I just need you. We just need you. Holy Spirit, we, we always pray before we read Scripture. We always acknowledge that we need you to help us interpret. But especially this morning, Lord, please take the humble morsels that we are going to deliver and turn them into a meal that I can't do, Lord. Only you can do it. So God, as we read your words, do with it as you will. We anticipate hearing from you, Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, before I launch into this, uh, I would like to say that the nursery is open. If you have uh, a two and under kid that would like to go in the nursery. It's going to be in the fellowship hall. There's a whole bunch of fun stuff in there. So feel free to take your kids that way if you would so choose. And adults, if you want to escape from this sermon, you have to wait. No, you can leave any time. Luke chapter 21, I'm going to start just by reading the whole section. And then we're going to break it down. Some of his disciples, this is verse 5, were remarking about how the temple was adorned with beautiful stones and with gifts dedicated to God. But Jesus said, As for what you see here, the time will come when not one stone will be left on another. Every one of them will be thrown down. Teacher, they asked, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign that they are about to take place? He replied, Watch out, that you are not deceived. For many will come in my name, claiming, I am he, and the time is near. Do not follow them. When you hear of wars and revolutions, do not be frightened. These things must happen first, but the end will not come right away. Then he said to them, Nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes, famines, and pestilences in various places and fearful events and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will lay hands on you and persecute you. They will deliver you to synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors, and all on account of my name. This will result in your being witnesses to them, but make up your mind not to worry beforehand how you will defend yourselves. For I will give you words and wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. You will be betrayed even by parents, brothers, relatives, and friends, and they will put some of you to death. All men 
will hate you because of me. But not a hair of your head will perish. By standing firm, you will gain life. When you see Jerusalem being surrounded by armies, you will know that its desolation is near. Let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those in the city get out, and let those in the country not enter the city. For this is the time of punishment and fulfillment of all that has been written. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. There will be great distress in the land and wrath against this people. They will fall by the sword and will be taken as prisoners to all the nations. Jerusalem will be trampled on by the Gentiles. Until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. There will be signs in the sun, moon, and stars. On the earth, nations will be in anguish and perplexity at the roaring and tossing of the sea. Men will faint from terror, apprehensive of what is coming on the world, for the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. When these things begin to take place, stand up and lift up your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. He told them this parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. When they sprout leaves, you can see for yourself and know that summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happening, you know that the kingdom of God is near. I tell you the truth, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Be careful or your hearts will be weighed down with dissipation, drunkenness, and the anxieties of life. And that day will close on you unexpectedly like a trap. For it will come upon all those who live on the face of the whole earth. Be always on the watch, and pray that you may be able to escape all that is about to happen, and that you may be able to stand before the Son of Man. Each day Jesus was teaching at the temple, and each evening he went out to spend the night on the hill called the Mount of Olives, And all the people came early in the morning to hear him at the temple. Well, now you see why I prayed so carefully before we read this passage. (laughs) You know, we've been studying Luke's gospel. And the gospel was written for whom? Who did Luke write the gospel of Luke for? The Gentiles. That's us. We are part of the group that is Gentile. This same sermon is recorded in both the Gospel of Mark, Mark 13, and Matthew 24. I don't have time this morning to reference both of those chapters as well, but I do encourage you to go read them, and I encourage you to take a look at them and compare them because Matthew and Mark give a a different perspective on this message of Jesus with a different emphasis. Luke's emphasis that we have just read is on the destruction of Jerusalem and specifically the destruction of the temple. Just as a quick note, Matthew is more concerned about the return of Jesus and less about the destruction of the temple. Now, Do you know that literally tens of thousands of pages 
have been written to try to figure out what this passage means. For 2,000 years, people have been trying to figure out what this means. For 2,000 years. And at the very heart of all of those tens of thousands of pages is Luke chapter 21. So I do not assume to be able to come to you and say, we're going to answer all the mysteries. But we are going to take a look at what's here. What did Jesus mean? There's the question, right? What, what did Jesus mean when he said this stuff? What, 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 did, what does this mean? This, hey, do you know? <laughs> I, I saw a hand raise. I saw, Haven, Haven knows. From the mouths of babes comes wisdom. Oh, wouldn't that be great? I, I wish Jesus could just show up. Even, could, could we just get Paul to show up? And just, Paul, just, Apostle Paul, please, just explain. Of course, he does. Second Thessalonians, and there's, a, there's all kinds of stuff in the New Testament where they try to explain it, and then it gets even more complicated. Right? I can't wait to just ask Jesus. <laughs> just, Jesus, what did you mean? This is not an easy question to answer. But I think we should begin by the way that I've been teaching you to approach Scripture. We need to make sure we understand the context, right? And we need to make sure we understand and do our exegesis. Now, that's a fancy word, but I've taught you what that word means. Exegesis means what did the original audience understand the text to mean? See, we have a problem in the church today. We skip exegesis. I've told you that. We jump, we skip exegesis, and we jump immediately to what does this mean for us today? That's extremely dangerous because what it meant to the original audience is the anchor by which we can interpret what it means for us today. If we skip what it meant for the original audience, we can take a text and make it mean anything we want to. Do you understand that? When you don't do the work of exegesis, when you don't look at what the original audience understood, you can make a text mean anything you want. Because there's no, there's no anchor. There's no, there's no historical anchor to the text when you do that. All right. So, in a passage like this, exegesis is extra important. Context is extra important. And the passage, it begins simply enough. I mean, look at verses 5 and 6. Some of his disciples were remarking about how the temple was adorned with beautiful stones and with gifts decorated to God. But Jesus said, as, as for what you see here, the time will come when not one stone will be left on another. Every one of them will be thrown down. Now, many of you sat patiently and wonderfully through a, a long sermon series from the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. Does anybody remember that? Or have you blanked it out of your memory entirely? If you've blanked out that 17 sermon series on Ezra and Nehemiah, you can go to our website. It is on our website if you have the stamina. You can listen to the Ezra and Nehemiah sermon on the website. Go to the sermons button and, and they're all on there. They're, they're, they're not videos, they're audio, but you can listen to them. Um, so that would be something good you could do. In that sermon series, Ezra and Nehemiah, the Old Testament books, we learned that the temple was rebuilt. Remember, the first temple was built by King Solomon. That temple was destroyed in 586 B.C. by the Babylonians. Remember? 
And the prophet Jeremiah had prophesied that that temple would be destroyed. And then about 70 years later, Zerubbabel and then Ezra and, of course, eventually Nehemiah, they were told by God and that the prophets Haggai and Zechariah encouraged the people to rebuild the temple. And Zerubbabel, the political leader of the Jews at that time, rebuilt the temple, and that was called the second temple. A lot of times it's referred to as Ezra's temple. That temple was built, wow, you get a free sucker if anybody knows the year, because I said this in the Ezra Nehemiah sermon series. Anybody remember the date that the second temple was completed? Anybody? Take a guess. Anybody? What? 516 B.C. It was started much earlier, but then they got discouraged. Remember that story? And then it wasn't worked on for like 20 years. And then that's why God sent the prophets Haggai to be like, finish the temple! And so then the people finished. You should probably go back and just listen to the Ezra Nehemiah. Okay, we're going to move on. All right, so this temple has been built in 516 B.C., before Christ, before the Common Era, 516. And then Herod the Great, when he came to power, he decided the Jews didn't like him very much. He came to power before Christ, about 20 years before Jesus was born. And he decided he needed to impress the Jews under his care, the subjects of his kingdom. And the way he decided to impress them was by renovating Ezra's temple. That renovation project started in 20 B.C. At the time of Jesus, and the time when Jesus was in Jerusalem, it was 33 A.D., and the renovations weren't done yet. For 53 years, the temple had been under renovation. King Herod had spared no expense. And by the way, he'd been dead for a number of years. His sons kept the renovation project going. And the temple in Jerusalem, by the time of Jesus, had had 53 years worth of renovations, and it was magnificent. It was verging on becoming the eighth wonder of the world, of the ancient world. It was resplendent in beauty. Uh, authors like the first century author Josephus, Jewish historian, talk about, they describe how beautiful the temple was. It was magnificent. It was magnificent. And so... Imagine this group of Galilean fishermen walking with Jesus in Jerusalem and going like this. Have you seen, have you seen people from Bertha go to New York City? They look like that, right? That's the Galilean fishermen in Jerusalem looking at the temple. And by the way, the temple renovation, it went on for another 20-some years after Jesus. The temple was not completed. The renovations of King Herod were not completed until 64 AD. 64! It went from 20 BC until 64 AD. That's a big remodel project. Now, imagine what went through the disciples' minds when Jesus said what he said. Imagine. As for what you see here, the time will come when not one stone will be left on another. Every one of them will be thrown down. So can you see these Galilean fishermen? Wow, Jesus, this place is, this place is lit. 
Sorry. And imagine Jesus being like, yeah, not one stone will be left on another. Not one stone will be left on another. So, the disciples are usually kind of, you know, thick-headed. But in this particular case, they ask the exact question you and I would have asked if Jesus said that. Look at the question. Verse 7. Teacher, when will these things happen? And what will the sign be they're about to take place? Now, that's a good question. That's a good question. And Jesus replied, Watch out that you are not deceived, for many will come in my name, claiming, I am he, and the time is near. Do not follow them. When you hear of wars and revolutions, do not be frightened. These things must happen first, but the end will not come right away. Now again, I want you to imagine what the disciples would have heard and understood in Jesus' reply. When you think of it from the disciples' perspective, because this is what modern preachers that talk about the end times, they never consider the disciples' perspective. They skip exegesis. Do you see this? Think about what the disciples would have heard. Jesus' answers would have been crazy confusing. I mean, think about it. This is hard for us to imagine. Jesus was literally right there. That is very difficult for us to imagine, isn't it? Like the human person of Jesus. He was there talking to them. And they ask him, when is it going to happen? And Jesus gives them this answer. And they're like, why are you talking about when you're going to return? Because you're right here. Are you going somewhere? (laughs) That's what the disciples would have thought. See, we look at this passage and we think, this is about the grand coming of the end of the age. But the, the disciples wouldn't have been thinking that way, I don't think. They would have been thinking, Jesus, where are you going? What, what do you mean you're going you're gonna to return? You, you're, you haven't gone anywhere. Hmm. How could they be possibly be deceived? How could the disciples be deceived by someone impersonating Jesus when they literally knew him in person? Like they must have been, what are you talking about? Can you imagine how strange Jesus' words must have been to them? Now, I'm guessing, however, that the disciples, it didn't take them long to realize and to recognize that Jesus was beginning to speak in a prophetic way. You see, biblical prophecy was not unknown to, to the disciples. I mean, they had the books of Daniel and Isaiah and Jeremiah, and they were certainly familiar with them in the first century. So they knew that God could speak through humans to give us an understanding of the future. Moreover, many Jewish prophecies involved the temple in Jerusalem and the temple's destruction and desecration. For example, the prophet Daniel spoke of the abomination of desecration. If you read Daniel, you'll find that in there, the abomination of desecration. But every Jew in the first century would have known what that meant. You see, in 168 B.C., about 200 years before this moment of Christ, the abomination of desecration, that prophecy in Daniel was fulfilled. It was fulfilled by a guy named Antiochus Epiphanes who set up a statue of Zeus in the Holy of Holies in the temple. Did you know that? If you listen to my timeline series, 
you would remember that that is true. That happened in the time between the Old and the New Testament. It's recorded actually in, this, in the book of 1 Maccabees, which is one of the books in the Catholic Bible. Still worth reading, by the way. Just don't read it as Scripture. It's not Scripture. But it is history. It's worth reading. So, the Jewish people and the disciples, they would have known that this idea of desolation in the temple, they, that would have triggered in their minds, oh, Jesus is talking about Daniel and about what happened during the Maccabean Revolt of 168 B.C. So, like, their minds would have been triggered. Oh, Jesus is, like, turning in, he's, like, turning on his prophetic voice right here. But it still must have been startling to the disciples. And when Jesus talked about the end, their thought would have been the end of what exactly? The end of the world? Maybe. I mean, we just assume Jesus is talking about the end of the world in this passage. But the disciples would not have assumed that. Because the disciples might have thought, is Jesus talking about the end of the age? Not necessarily the end of the world. The end of the age. The age of what? The age of the Jews? The age of the Gentiles? But, I mean, there's a whole lot of questions here the disciples would have had that we don't have because we don't think about it from the disciples' perspective. Do you see that? When you skip exegesis, you get crazy interpretation of prophecy, which the church in America is drowning in today. Verse 10, then he said to them, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes, famines and pestilences in various places and fearful events and great signs from heaven. Woo, that does not sound good. <laughs> that does not sound good. Wars, natural disasters, pestilences, fearful events, signs from heaven. That sounds really bad. But then Jesus does something unexpected. Instead of continuing to describe more events, he actually backs up a little bit. Notice his language in the next verse, verse 12. But before all this, do you see that? Now Jesus has actually said there's going to be wars and natural disasters and pestilences. But then he says, before those things happen, let me tell you what's going to happen before those things happen. Do you see that? Jesus is not giving a chronology here. He's, he's jumping around. Do you see that? Some people read this like it's a chronology of events. That is not what this is. So now Jesus says, before a bunch of the wars and pestilences happen, let me tell you what's going to happen before. Now remember, the book of Luke, the gospel of Luke, is actually part of a two-volume set. What is volume two? Acts. Luke and Acts. The gospel of Luke and the book of Acts in the New Testament are both written by Luke. They are volume 1 and volume 2. They are meant to be read together. So, that makes a lot of sense when we get to the next part. Look at, look at now, Jesus says before all of this, so what happens before all of this? Go to verse, 20, verse 12. But before all of this, they will lay hands on you and persecute you. They will deliver you to synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors, and all on account of my name. So, before the wars, before the natural disasters, pestilence, fearful events, and signs from heaven, before all of that, followers of Jesus will be persecuted. Now, in this next section, I want you to notice that Luke does something very intentional. 
He is tying the words of Jesus in the next paragraph I'm about to read. He's tying the words of Jesus directly into the book of Acts. This is a key connecting passage between the two volumes of Luke and Acts. So now look at verses 12 through 19. Before all of this, they will lay hands on you and persecute you. They will deliver you to synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors, and all on account of my name. This will result in your being witnesses to them. But make up your mind not to worry beforehand how you will defend yourselves, for I will give you words and wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. You will be betrayed even by parents, brothers, relatives, and friends, and they will put some of you to death. All men will hate you because of me, but not a hair of your head will perish. By standing firm, you will gain life. Now look at Acts chapter 6, verses 8 through 10. Compare these side by side. Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, did great wonders and miraculous signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, for members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the prophets of Cilicia and Asia. These men will begin to argue with Stephen, but they could not stand up against his wisdom or the spirit by whom he spoke. Do you see the parallel? Luke has purposely tied the words of Jesus in Jesus' speaking during the last week of his life directly to the ministry of Stephen in Acts chapter 6. And it's almost like saying, look, here's what to expect as believers in Christ. I, I just want you to notice that the church in America does not expect to be persecuted today. In fact, if there's even a, just a hint of the possibility of persecution, we flip out and our rights are being trampled. That's, what the, that's how the church in America responds. My rights are being trampled when I'm being persecuted. Do you realize that Jesus said you're going to be persecuted? Did, did you realize that that's what's going to happen? So this whole thing about, oh, I'm being persecuted. Help, help, I'm being oppressed, right? Okay, yes, I just quoted a movie there. See if you, anybody got that. Okay, do you understand that that's expected? That persecution is what you should expect. Persecution even to the point of death. You know, it's like the church in America today has got this feeling like, thank you, Jesus, for taking our punishment we deserved on the cross so we can live victorious and never have to worry about being persecuted. That's false! Jesus says, take up your cross. We should be suffering. We should expect suffering. You know why the church in America doesn't like to talk about that? Because it doesn't market very well. (laughs) Be a Christian, and everything is going to go great. Your marriage will get better. Your finances will get better. Everything is going to be great. You don't have to worry about persecution. And if anybody tries to persecute you for being a Christian, you can say, my religious rights are being violated. Really? Is anybody even reading the words of Jesus anymore? No. Come on! Church, persecution is part of what we do, and we're blessed when it happens. That's the words of Jesus. We are blessed when we're persecuted. Good things happen when we're persecuted. Good things. It develops perseverance and such. Comparing these two, these two passages side by side, Luke and Acts, it just shows you how they're connected. Now, one more quick note. 
Look at verses 18 and 19. But not a hair of your head will perish. By standing firm, you will gain life. This is a verse that is pulled out of context all the time. Okay? Because people say, in, especially in America, we should not... This is like prosperity gospel. We're always going to be blessed if we're a Christian. That's what prosperity gospel says. And then they quote this verse and say, God will protect you. Right? They quote this verse. It does not mean you're not going to suffer for your faith. That's not what this means. Well, it shows that God will protect you so you never get hurt when you're a Christian. Look at the two verses before this. The two verses before. You will be betrayed by, even by parents, brothers, relatives, and friends, and they will put some of you to death. Well, how can, how can Jesus say that a hair of your head won't be taken out? And two verses before, he just said you're gonna, some of you are going to die. Some of you are going to be killed for the faith. Because the hair of the head verse is talking about your spiritual life. It's talking about the fact that you've got eternal hope. It's talking about that you're going to be resurrected. It is not talking that you are going to be free from physical or even political persecution. Did everybody get that? Could we please stop with this whole thing that we have, we deserve stuff as Christians? Could we please stop with this? We deserve hell. That's what we deserve. We have gained the hope of eternal life and resurrection in Christ. And we will join with Him in His suffering. That's following Jesus. Okay, woo! Um, we're having fun now. Okay, let's, we're going to motor through this because this has got to keep it together as a unit. The protection God gives us is spiritual protection, not physical. Now, move on to Verses 20 through 24. And by the way, up till now, it's been the easy stuff. (laughs) Woo! Here we go. Verses 20 through 24. Starting to get into the more difficult stuff. When you see Jerusalem being surrounded by armies, you will know that its desolation is near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those in the city get out. And let those in the country not enter the city. For this is the time of punishment in fulfillment of all that has been written. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. There will be great distress in the land and wrath against this people. They will fall by the sword and will be taken as prisoners to all the nations. Jerusalem will be trampled on by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. People have left our church because of what I'm going to say next. Jesus is referring, most likely, to an event that has already happened. There are Christians who disagree with me so strongly as to leave this church because of that. That's crazy to me, but I'm just telling you, that's happened. Something very important happened in 70 A.D. Anybody remember? Mark, you remember? Yes. The Roman army destroyed Jerusalem and destroyed the temple. I believe Jesus in this section is prophesying that destruction. That dest- Jesus was speaking in 33 AD. This happened in 70. Jesus is saying to the people listening, 
when you see the armies gather around Jerusalem, get out of town. (laughs) It's going to be bad. It's going to be really bad. And by the way, it was really, really bad. And it was a really real historical event. And, you know, I like history. I want to show you something. Oh, Lisa, I forgot to ask for permission. I'm going to show a picture with you in it. I hope it's okay. All right, all right, so here we go. This picture, this is called the Arch of Titus. Now, what's cool about the Arch of Titus is that it's still standing today. What's even more cool is my family was standing next to it, okay? So that's a picture from Wikipedia. It's a really nice picture, and the Arch of Titus is an arch that is in the Roman Forum. Kim, you've seen this too. You've been to the Roman Forum. The Arch of Titus was an arch that was built in 81 AD to commemorate the Roman victory over the Jews in Jerusalem, ending with the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. So this was built 11 years after the destruction of Jerusalem. You can still go today and you can put your hand on it. You might get shot, but you can. It's still there, okay? Now, that's a really nice picture but I've got a better picture. And Elisa, this picture's better because you're in it. Okay, now the cool thing about this picture, oh, she's shaking her head. I'm probably in trouble. The cool thing about this picture is see way in the back, behind Elisa and to the left, that is the Arch of Titus. And by the way, Elisa's standing on the fourth level of the Colosseum in this picture. So we're like literally standing on the Colosseum wall. It's fun to go to Rome. I recommend it. I might go again. You can come with me, maybe. We are standing on the upper level of the Colosseum, looking out over the Roman Forum, and to the left is the Arch of Titus. Here's the point of all of this. Besides, nobody wants to look at people's vacation pictures. But the point of this is, the destruction of Jerusalem is a real event. And the arch that was built in commemoration of the real event is still there. There's a picture of the arch of the Jewish menorah that the Romans took out of the holy place of the temple. It's carved in the stone of the arch. The riches of the temple, the ornate stones, the gold, the Romans literally hauled it away and literally carved it into that arch. You can go look at it today. The destruction of Jerusalem was bad in 70 A.D. Yes, eat your children bad. Yeah. What happened with the Babylonians in 586 B.C. was repeated in 70 A.D. The Romans besieged Jerusalem and it was bad. And you can go and look at the actual historical marker of the event. Let's get back to the words of Jesus. Verse 24. They will fall by the sword and will be taken as prisoners to all nations. Jerusalem will be trampled on by the Gentiles and the times until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Now, I'm very interested to know here, what does Jesus mean by until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled? In Mark and Matthew, that sentence is not in there. This is special to Luke, the times of the Gentiles. Makes sense, right? Luke was written to the Gentiles. What is the times of the Gentiles? Well, do you know when the temple was destroyed in 70 A.D.? It was never rebuilt. The temple mount 
the only place the Jews are allowed to rebuild the temple, was eventually conquered by the nation, well, not the nation, but the the religion of Islam. The Temple Mount today is controlled by Islam. And in fact, there's a building on the Temple Mount that is there today. Does anybody know the name of that building? The Dome of the Rock. It is the second most holy site in Islam. And it's sitting on the place where the temple's supposed to be. You want to talk about a valuable piece of property. And the Jews today want to rebuild their temple. And they want to put it on that spot. That sounds like it might be just a touch contentious. They've been waiting for nearly 2,000 years to put the temple back on that spot. And the Dome of the Rock's been there for more than 1,000 years. Wow! Did you guys see the Dome of the Rock when you were there? You couldn't get close because you're not Muslims, but you could see the Dome of the Rock. It's on the highest hill in Jerusalem. You can pretty much see it from everywhere. Yeah. Are you guys hanging with me? I know I'm going over a little bit. I want to finish this whole unit. Okay? The time of the Gentiles. The time of the Gentiles. Are Muslims Jews or Gentiles? Gentiles. The Muslim whole, second most holy site is built where the Jewish temple is supposed to be. Right? May I suggest to you, using logic, we are still in the time of the Gentiles. Make sense? I believe we are still in the time of the Gentiles that Jesus has referred to here. And so when the temple was destroyed, Jesus is saying, that's going to happen. And then there's going to be a time of Gentiles. Jerusalem will be trampled on by the Gentiles. That's the Romans. And then the Gentiles will have a time that will be fulfilled. That time is still our time. The Dome of the Rock is still sitting there. So what's going to happen next? Well, you see, the next section... Verses 25 through 28, this is where it gets confusing again. I want to read it. There will be signs in the sun, moon, and stars. On the earth, nations will be in anguish and perplexity at the roaring and tossing of the sea. Men will faint from terror, apprehensive of what is coming on the world, for the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. When these things begin to take place, stand up and lift your heads because your redemption is drawing near. I'm going to suggest to you, with fear and trembling, That Jesus has now moved from the time of the destruction of the temple forward in time to when the time of the Gentiles is completed. In other words, he was talking about something that is in our past, but now he's moved to something that is in our future. You see that? Fear and trembling, remember. (laughs) Fear and trembling. It seems likely that this is a jump forward, a prophetic jump forward, something after the time of the Gentiles. And I went, 
There are so many interpretations of this section of Scripture in, in Christianity as to blow your mind. Like, literally, there is almost an infinite number of possible interpretations of this. You know why? Because it's in the future. If anybody tells you they know exactly what's going to happen in the future, stop listening to them. I know it's really nice to listen to the radio. I know it's really nice to think that everybody on the radio, all of the pastors and all of the political commentators, they, they talk like they know what they're talking about. When, it, when one of them says, here's what's going to happen at the end of time, stop listening because they don't know. Now, if they say, this is one of many interpretations and I want to say what scripture I believe is saying, that's good. But if they say they know for sure, turn them off. Because they don't. In fact, Jesus himself gives us that warning. If anybody says, it is I, don't listen to them. But then he also says, but if anybody says, I know the time, don't listen to them either. And there's a whole bunch of Christians right now saying, Jesus is coming back in our lifetime. Maybe he will, but maybe he won't. If anybody says they know it's in their lifetime, stop listening to them. They are leading you astray, even if they sound really polished in their sermons. And it's really nice because they're on Christian radio. Stop listening to that. Ooh. Now, that doesn't mean this is easy to understand. I mean, look at verse 26. Men will faint from terror apprehensive of what is coming on the world, for the heavenly bodies will be shaken? That's bad. Have you ever seen a man faint from terror? You ever seen that? Anybody? Has anybody seen anybody literally faint because they were terrified? Anybody? You've seen that? Wow. That's scary. I haven't seen that. Neither have you. Guess what? It means we're not there yet. <laughs> I mean, is this just using logic at this point? Right? If when it comes time when people are fainting in terror because of what they see in the sky, then you can probably say it's getting close. If you haven't seen that lately, it may not be here yet. Like, is this hard to understand? Why is the American church freaking out about this stuff? And you know I'm right. You know that people are freaking out about this stuff. That's not healthy because it's not biblical. Verses 27 and 28. At that time, they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. When these things begin to take place, stand up and lift your heads because your redemption is drawing near. And now, at this point, Jesus makes it obvious he's talking about himself. And I... He's also doing something quite interesting. There is something called double fulfillment of prophecy or also called progressive fulfillment of prophecy. It, that's a fancy theological term. Here's what it means. Some of the prophecies in the Bible are spoken in such a way that they are going to be fulfilled multiple times. This is where it gets complex. And this is where I'm, again, fear and trembling. I think what Jesus is doing here is he's saying, the temple's going to be destroyed. It's going to be destroyed soon. When you see that happening, don't go in Jerusalem. It's going to be bad. But then Jesus is using that 
near event as a mirror, as a comparison to say, and like what happens in Jerusalem is going to be bad, it will be that bad everywhere when I come back. In other words, the fulfillment of the temple being destroyed in 70 will, that same type of event is going to happen again. Now, there's tons of speculation about that. In fact, some people have said, well, obviously Jesus can't come back until the Jewish temple is rebuilt. Some people have said that. Is that what Jesus said here? Look at the words. Is that what Jesus says here? No. Jesus does not say, I know for sure that there's going to be a third temple built. He does not say that here. He says, what's going to happen in in 70 AD, which was for him the future, for us the past. That's going to be really bad. And then at the end of the age, when I return, that kind of terrible event will be worldwide. But he doesn't say, and there's definitely going to be a third temple that will be rebuilt. So when somebody says to you, I know the Jewish temple is going to be rebuilt, run away from them. They're adding to Scripture. They're pontificating at that point. Do you, are you guys seeing this? Read what's there. Don't read into what's there. All right. Verses 29 through 33. He told them this parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. When they sprout leaves, you can see for yourselves and know that summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happening, you know that the kingdom of God is near. And then this is the part that's really tricky. I tell you the truth. This generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. How could Jesus say that? By the way, if you've ever if you talk with an atheist long enough, they will quote this passage and say, "See, I told you Jesus didn't know what he was talking about." Cuz Jesus says that the people of his generation will still be there when he comes the second time. But notice what Jesus is actually saying here. If this is a double, predest- a double, a double uh, prophecy event, a double fulfillment of prophecy event that Jesus is quoting here, then Jesus is right. Because people whom he was speaking to in person were still alive when the temple was destroyed in 70 AD. That generation had not passed away. And this is where... People like to disagree with me, and I'm fine with disagreement. This is like a a secondary doctrine, okay? People want to say, Jesus is not talking about the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD in this event. He's only talking about the end times. But then when you say, then how could he say that? When I brought that up, that was enough to make someone leave the church. Yeah, that's how divisive this issue is, isn't it? It makes sense to me. Historically, I've seen the Arch of Titus. 70 AD really happened. And it really looks like very similar to what Jesus was describing. And that generation would have seen it. That generation would have seen the destruction of the temple. So Jesus is right. But then how could Jesus say that all these things have happened when he's also talking about what happens at the end of time? Well. Because if you've seen the destruction of Jerusalem, 
You've seen what it's going to be like at the end. It's the same, just worldwide. (laughs) Do you see that? Jesus knows what he's talking about. And of course, if you look at your NIV, there's a text note that says maybe the word generation can be translated as race. And see, that's a way for people to say the word race there is that the Jewish people will still be around when the end comes. I think that's a stretch. I think that textually, that's really problematic. It's a reason it's a footnote and not in the text. And do we even need to know that? You see, Jesus has given us what we need to know. Here, let me give you what we need to know. The destruction of Jerusalem was bad, and it's going to be worldwide when he comes back. 34, be careful or your hearts will be weighed down with dissipation, drunkenness, and the anxieties of life. And that day will come on you unexpectedly like a trap, for it will come upon you on all those who live on the whole face of the earth. Be always on the watch and pray that you may be able to escape all that is about to happen and you may be able to stand before the Son of Man. Be ready. If you were in that generation, be ready for what's going to happen when the Romans come. And if you're in our generation, be ready, because that same kind of thing is going to happen again. Now I know many of you would like to get into, is there a seven-year tribulation, and when's the rapture happen, and is there a thousand-year reign? That goes far beyond the scope of this sermon. I'd love to talk with you about it. I would love to even preach about it, but not today. Not today. Can I just sum this up? This is the last public sermon Jesus gave. And the whole point of the sermon is, be ready. I've gone far over. Let's pray. Thank you, Jesus that you saw fit to give us a glimpse into what's going to happen. Oh, Lord, I can stand here and I can say, I wish you would have made that a bit more clear. (laughs) But I believe you are God and you have all knowledge. And so I believe that for a reason I may not understand, you have given us what we needed, and it is enough. It is my prayer that the church today would not be lulled into a false sense of entitlement, a false sense of thinking that we deserve to never be persecuted, a false sense of thinking that somehow we are above the suffering of Christ. And instead, Lord, may we walk with courage bravely into the future, knowing that we may be physically harmed but can never be spiritually touched. May we live as those who are ready, no matter what comes our way. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.